0: Hello, and welcome to a special joint episode of the Giant Splash and A's Plus podcast, here on the 30th anniversary of a night at Candlestick Park that none of us who were there will ever forget. I'm Henry Schulman, the Giants beat reporter for The Chronicle, and I'm in studio with Chronicle features writer Ron Kroichick. On October 17, 1989, we were both at Candlestick to cover Game 3 of the first and so far only Bay Bridge World Series between the Giants and the A's. At 5.04 p.m., the Bay Area was struck by what is now known as the Loma Prieta earthquake, a 6.9-magnitude shaker that did so much damage in the Bay Area, killed 63 people, injured thousands, and postponed the World Series for 10 days. This podcast is part of the Chronicle's extensive 30th anniversary remembrance of the Loma Prieta quake. Besides Ron and I, you'll hear from our colleagues John Shea and Bruce Jenkins, who were there as well. You can find complete coverage of our 30th anniversary remembrance at sfchronicle.com that includes an oral history of that night from Candlestick, compiled by Ron Krojcik, including interviews with players, executives, and the like, including Will Clark and Dennis Eckersley. And we also have audio clips from others who were there at Candlestick, Chronicle and non-Chronicle folk alike. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg. From Bloomberg. Like to bring Ron in here now, Ron. How are you doing?
3: Good, Henry. Thanks for having me.
0: Thirtieth anniversary. Boy, I think that we're really. This could also be a podcast uh, about the aging process and how we're both kind of transitioning into senior citizenship. Well, we were uh, young then. At least we were both <laughs> young and. Uh, I was in my second year covering the Giants. I was working for the Oakland Tribune. They made me a baseball writer. You were at the Sacramento Bee. Now, which year of that was was it for you? I was actually backing up. That was Susan Fornoff's last
3: year on the beat. Um, I backed up on the A's most of that year, and then took over the beat in 1990 because I was determined only to cover, you know, World Series champions. So, <laughs> um, actually I actually had five good years from '90 90 to '94. Very, as you know, very good team. Very interesting team, full of dynamic personalities. Um, but I was writing sidebars you know, during the postseason. I was in Toronto with the A's and the ALCS, and then obviously at at the stick that uh, unforgettable night. So. Yeah,
0: and I I was uh, I was the beat reporter for the Oakland Tribune, and uh, I, I it was my second year, and and I'd covered the 1988 World Series that the A's were in, so it wasn't my first rodeo in terms of a World Series, right. but it was a huge deal that the Giants were playing the A's. Uh, it was a World Series that people talked about as being not interesting to the people outside the Bay Area, you know, other than the fact that, uh, you know, you had the Bash Brothers and the Pacific Sock Exchange. And, you know, we all talked about how the networks really didn't think it was anything that was going to garner much attention. And then at 504, it garnered a heck of a lot of attention. And maybe you could just, uh, we'll just take turns here just reciting our, our most vivid memories of that night. How about you?
3: Well, I think, and you bring up a good point that I think gets lost in the history books, and rightly so because of the earthquake. But before the earthquake hit, at least here in Northern California, that was a big deal. I mean, it's literally a once-in-a-lifetime thing for the A's and the Giants to get in the World Series. I mean, I grew up in Chicago. Never happened with the Cubs and the White Sox. Didn't happen in New York until, what, 2000? Um, and, of course, New Yorkers thought that was a big deal. So it, it was a pretty cool event, you know, sporting event, in, in those in that context, before the earthquake struck, and then obviously acquired a whole new dimension. Um, I was actually sitting in a very small room beneath the upper deck, kind of one of those makeshift media workrooms, uh, eating a box lunch that we're all used to, and going over some game notes and getting ready. Not a good place to be, if you think about it. I mean, a cement ceiling, probably 8, 10 feet high. Thank God uh, Candlestick stood. But my, my vivid memory is looking up and seeing Tony Kornheiser, and I believe it was Bill Conlin of the Philadelphia paper, freaking out. You know, two East Coast guys who hadn't been through earthquakes. They did the right thing. They were in a door doorway and, and held. But I mean, to me, it didn't initially feel any worse than any number of earthquakes we had gone through as Californians. Uh, I had moved here at age 12. So I'd been through a few in Southern California, and then a couple in my college days in Berkeley. Um, so at first, it didn't seem that devastating. And then you start hearing the buzz, and you go outside, and you see some cracks in the upper deck. And you know, word starts getting out about the Bay Bridge and such, and it obviously was a, a whole lot worse than, than a normal earthquake.
0: Yeah, I mean, my, my first vivid memory was that I had agreed foolishly to speak that afternoon uh, at a luncheon of a Rotary Club in Oakland. And I just remember driving to the uh, the Rotary Club. I think it was a noon luncheon. The game was supposed to start at about, you know, just after 5, and I just remember thinking to myself, boy, this is going to be a long day. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the earthquake itself, uh, I mean, well, first of all, it was a, it was a big deal, like you said. And uh, the, the Giants had gotten smoked. The A's had smoked them in the first two right. games. Stewart and uh, Mike Moore pitched jams. The Giants, I think, scored one run Correct. total in the two games. and And there really was a sense that now that those two pitchers were out of the way, that the Giants at home actually had a shot. To win. Um, I mean, this is completely aside, of course, with the 10-day break with the World Series, Stewart and Moore got to pitch again, and uh, that's all she wrote. Uh, the thing I remember most is is the press box itself at Candlestick. It was really just a football luxury box um, that had that is converted to a press box during the offseason. It had some tables, but it had these big, you know, kind of fluffy chairs that you sat in, and you really couldn't move in them. And the press box itself at Candlestick it was connected to the upper deck structurally. You didn't worry about it, but it still kind of hung over the lower deck. If I stood up and looked out my window, there was nothing below me other than people in the lower deck, and you had this sensation that the thing could just fall apart and you would go diving down into the into the first deck. And uh, I had been through the, the Silmar earthquake in Los Angeles when I was 11 years old in 1971, it was a quake that—it um, was over a seven. I believe it was a seven. and actually killed about 70 people in a brand-new hospital that collapsed. And um, I, just like you, I'm, it, it just didn't seem like it was that big of an earthquake. But I do remember all the East Coast writers and Midwest writers were trying to get out of these big overstuffed chairs to try and get out, and they, they just couldn't move, and they kept running into each other. And I remember Nick Peters of the Sacramento Bee, the late Nick Peters, and I remember him yelling as loud as he could, don't panic, don't panic. And then, of course, I heard, just like you did, like everybody did, the cheers from the crowd. You saw that uh, famous uh, picture of a fan holding up a, a sign saying something like, if you think that was something, wait till the Giants hit. Uh, And then my first uh, notion that there was not going to be baseball was when I looked up and I saw that the lights standards were out and uh, that the scoreboard was all jumbled. And I think like a lot of us, uh, we saw really quickly that the the action, the news was now all the way onto the field. Um, Did you ever have a sense that there was going to be baseball once that earthquake hit?
3: Not really, no. Um, And it was hard to understand at first what was happening because, you know, we're so uh, accustomed now to instant information and Twitter and cell phones. And none of that really existed at the time. So you didn't know right away. And one of the people I talked to for the, the oral history you mentioned was George Costa, who's the uh, head of security and operations at the Giants. Um, and he said, you know, they were trying to put together information in the immediate aftermath around that police car right behind home plate and, um, and one of the, you know they kind of said okay we don't have power we don't have a PA system uh, we don't know when the lights are going to come back on or if they're going to come back on and that's when they started sort of going through the list and realizing even before they heard the the extent of the damage throughout the bay area it probably wasn't practical to play a game with 60,000 people uh in that facility and and who knows about aftershocks so they they sort of made a very rational uh decision after a, a you know the conversation about the situation and uh uh, you know, and and ended up just uh, postponing the game fairly quickly after that.
0: And of course, the people back home really had no idea what was going on uh, because the the broadcast, which was just starting, uh, it was the pregame show. Uh, it it got cut off, and uh, you Al Michaels was one of the um, he was one of the announcers. He was the announcer who was on the air. Uh, let's listen to uh, our colleague John Shea uh, here at the Chronicle. He was. Working for the uh, Gannett papers at the time, including the Marin Independent Journal, uh, he talks about that briefly at uh, the end of this uh, short
1: remembrance.: So at 5:04 p.m, I was visiting my editor in the last row, right behind the plate. I had a bird's-eye view of the entire stadium, so when the quake hit, I saw sections of the ballpark shift away from other sections of the ballpark, like the thing was about to come down. There was silence from the crowd at first. And then there was a sense of, hey, that was an earthquake, and we're going to be okay. And then loud applause, like, let's play ball. Well, no. I grew up here, so I'd been through a few of these, and uh, none like this. I mean, I was not applauding. I rushed down the steps to the press box behind the plate and tried to check in with the office. Then I went down to the field. All the news was happening down there, and players rushed out of the dugouts and clubhouses because they felt, safer on the grass, and their families came on down to join them. Fay Vincent, the commissioner at the time, was in his cart, police everywhere, one with a blowhorn telling people what to do, a police car on the field. Uh, it, it didn't take long to realize the magnitude of it all, and fans, to their credit, filed out orderly. I was on the story throughout, and the next day I was at the St. Francis Hotel for a candlelit press conference, and candlelit walking up those stairs at the entrance and into the room where Vincent laid out a schedule. There'd be no baseball for a while, obviously, and the Giants stayed in town and waited it out, and the A's were a little more baseball-oriented, especially after losing the 88 series to Kirk Gibson and those guys, and they flew to Arizona to work out for a couple of days. Uh, Of course, they were better anyway and more focused and finished off the sweep, but I remember a few East Coast writers who vowed never to return, though I saw at least one of them come back for the '02 2 World Series, Giants-Angels. So yeah, just to reflect, the quake hit a half hour before the game was to start. 60,000 folks were settling into their seats. Willie Mays was set to throw out the first pitch. The Gatlin brothers, for whatever reason, were going to perform the national anthem. And of course, those watching on TV were into the pregame show, ABC, which was showing replays of game two. Dave Parker pulling into second base with a double. And then their screens began to lose reception. And Al Michaels was heard saying, I think we're having an earth. I'll tell you what, we're having an earth. Yeah, that, uh,
0: that clip at the end there with uh, Al Michaels sort of become iconic. Now, you talked to Al for your oral history remembrance, which you can see on sfchronicle.com. Uh, what did he say about that?
3: Well, it was interesting. Um, he has more Bay Area background than I realized. I knew he had announced for the Giants um, for three seasons in the 70s, 1974 to 76. Um, and he told me he lived in Menlo Park at the time and actually stayed in Menlo Park after that when he went to ABC. So he had lived in the Bay Area for about 12 years, so had some history with and familiarity with the area and also with earthquakes. Um, he initially thought it was kids because the broadcast booth, uh much like the press box was sort of tucked in between the upper deck and the next level, and he thought it was initially kids banging bats above him because the floor of the upper deck was directly above the broadcast booth. That was his first thought, but he very quickly, when they start when the the stadium started moving, he very quickly realized it was an earthquake, as you mentioned, Tim McCarver was. Uh, commenting on the video highlights from game two. Dave Parker had doubled in a run. Parker's coming into second on the highlight. They're showing uh, Canseco scoring and then going back to the dugout. And that's when the earthquake hits and they lose the picture. And Michaels interrupts McCarver to say, we're having an earth. And that's it. And that's that's, it. That's all. He said quake, but it obviously got uh, covered up by the static and the lost signal. Um, but Michaels was interesting. He, uh, he, in addition to living in the Bay Area, he described himself as a map freak. So he had all the above San Francisco, above Paris, above New York maps. So he kind of knew not only the Bay Area, but he knew it from a visual, from an overhead perspective, which became relevant because they had the blimp there for the World Series. They sent Michaels down to the production truck, and he basically told the blimp where to go, And he provided the commentary and analysis as the blimp was showing the Bay Bridge, the marina, um, where Michaels had lived briefly, um, and the cypress structure in Oakland. So Michaels was explaining to viewers, this is the Bay Bridge, even though people in the Midwest and East thought of the Bay Bridge as this majestic thing between Yoruba Boy Island and San Francisco. And Michaels was explaining, this is the rugged side of the Bay Bridge, between uh, Treasure Island and Oakland, so his background in uh, with the Bay in the Bay Area became relevant, and he actually was nominated for a News Emmy for that coverage that night.
0: You know, um, obviously, this was before cell phones, right? Actual phone communications, wired phone communications, were uh, really cut off. It was hard to get a hold of anybody, and there was no internet. We we really didn't know what was going on until. Um, a couple of people in the uh, in the ballpark, in the press box, even some of the fans, they had this thing called a Sony Watchman. Um, I have to, you know, I, I mean, I have to explain this to our younger <laughs> viewers. Uh, you couldn't just watch TV on your phone. Um, they sold these. It was it was really quite a, a big deal at the time. Sony they Walk sold Man, these, wasn't it? Was it uh, Sony Walkman? Walkman was the uh, the stereo that you would uh, listen okay. to music. The Watchman was a little TV that had about a three inch screen on it. Got it. And it worked with an antenna, so you could actually see broadcast, not cable, but broadcast. And that's how we got our first pictures that the Bay Bridge uh, had faltered that one section. And then, of course, more uh, shockingly, the fires that were consuming the marina district. And then even more shocking than that, the site of the cypress structure having pancaked. And, and right. of course, at that point, we had thought that, that there were hundreds dead. I believe the Chronicle headline, if I'm not mistaken, yes. or the Examiner, actually erroneously the next morning said something like hundreds dead because they based that on what the traffic would have normally been like at five o'clock. And of course, traffic was lighter than usual. People left work early so they could go home. Um, to watch the World Series. And, you know, there, there were many, many fatalities in the dozens, uh, of course, but it, it was a lot better than it would have been uh, had there not been a World Series. And that was our first real sense for sure that, you know, that baseball was not going to be played. And thoughts just started going through your head about uh, what are they going to do with the World Series? I mean, uh, and you know, we and that became an issue. We'll talk about that a little later. That became an issue uh, down the line what to do. Um, and, and then we just you know, realized that the, the, again, the story was on the field. The players were on the field. Uh, they were you know, they had brought their families out there. There's a famous picture of Terry Steinbach, the Ace catcher, comforting his wife, uh, who was uh, in hysterics. There's another famous picture that was on Sports Illustrated of Kelly Downs, who was a Giants pitcher, and he had his, he was holding and carrying one of his uh, nephews um, off the field. That became the cover photo for, for Sports Illustrated the following week. And we gathered up all of our news. We talked to the players. Uh, We talked to the stadium officials. Um, We both had to write. I don't know about your situation, but communications with the newspaper was almost impossible. Um, And, you know, once we had gotten a hold and talked to all the players and, um, you know, we'd gotten all our news and we had to write it on our really rudimentary um, Radio Shack laptops – um, you know that that became tough in itself because they kicked us out of the ballpark, and I think you and I both had the e- exact same experience on how we wrote, right? Well, I, I remember them
3: saying, "Okay, we need to evacuate," and some of the East Coast writers or other writers—not necessarily East Coast—but resisted because they had a right. And I remember thinking, "Fine, I'm out of here." You know, <laughs> I didn't want to be in that building. I mean, my, my, I'm, I'm I'm happy that the the one phone call. I made two phone calls, one at the office, but first I called my mother to assure her that I was okay. And you're right, there were very few phones available. Um, But then when they said evacuate the press box, I'm like, good, I'm gone. Don't have
0: to tell me twice. Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, And that, because the parking lot, if you think about it, the parking lot seemed like the safest place in the world to be, right? Nothing was going to fall on you. So, yeah, I had the same experience you did. I went into the parking lot, found my old Toyota Corolla, and wrote my story by the interior light, probably draining the battery, but it worked. Um, cause I had like you gathered reaction, uh, in the ballpark and, and Nick Peters and I and Susan Fornoff and others from the B, uh, contributed to our coverage. So yeah, I wrote my story in the parking lot. I think I dictated it from a payphone in San Mateo. Um, cause I had been assigned to go down the peninsula and look for damage. Someone else had been, was in the city downtown. So, so it was a, a memorable night. Um, I don't know if you remember Bob Cohn, who was with the Arizona Republic at mm-hmm. the time. Um, he was a friend of mine, and he kind of latched on to me. Uh, he had nowhere to go, um, so he came with me and rode with me, did the same thing. He rode in my passenger seat, and we drove around the peninsula, and then a friend of mine lived in Daly City. We went to his parents' house and slept on the couch that night.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, you, the, you, you kids can uh, Google uh, payphone <laughs> while you're also Googling uh, Sony Watchman, um, and, uh, you, you can see henry 's uh, older than me, I just want for the record okay wanted, yeah well i you know, 'm older than any <laughs> and, than everybody, yeah, I uh, actually wrote my story in the front driver 's seat of my Datsun b two ten and uh, alongside of me in the passenger seat was Dave Newhouse, who was one of our columnists for The Chronicle. I also for put the, the interior i 'm sorry the Oakland Tribune, I also put my interior light on, but I also turned my engine on. Uh, my dad was a, a, a very good car repairman, and uh, I knew rudimentary things like if you don't turn the engine on, the battery's going to die. And other writers who evacuated actually sat in front of my car and used my headlights to write their stories. And there you um, go. teamwork. Yeah. So uh, one crazy thing happened. Uh, we had uh, there was a TV truck there, uh, right where we were all writing, and they happened to have one wired phone line. Uh, and you needed a phone line like that. You con- you connected it up to send your story in an analog fashion. Right. It took about two or three minutes to send a story. Now it's instantaneous. You email it and it's a millisecond. But then it took about two or three minutes to, to send your story. It a- was also taking about like 10 minutes just to get an open phone line. So each one of us was – it was taking about 13 minutes a person and we were taking turns And this one uh, radio guy who is still working in the Bay Area, so I won't mention his name, and he he does a lot of radio for uh, Latin America. He does writing and radio and TV for Latin America. And he got his turn on the phone, and he wasn't saying anything. Nothing was happening. And it was one of those situations where they're back in uh, whatever country they were in that he was talking to, uh, Venezuela or the Dominican or somewhere in Central America, and they said, we'll get to you in about 10 minutes. Just stand by. And when he told us that, people started going crazy, and they told him to hang up. And he said, no, I'm not going to hang up. It's my turn. And uh, somebody actually went to the phone, put his finger on the, the little button that hangs up the phone, and clicked it. And I thought we were going to have a fistfight. Um, fortunately, there were no fistfights. Now, you know, driving home from that, we, of course, had a lot of time to reflect. Um, and, and one of the things that you know uh, we, we came to realize was that the infrastructure in the Bay Area was uh It was just dead, uh, I mean there were, there were power outages everywhere you couldn 't cross the the bay bridge. Uh, our colleague Bruce Jenkins, who had just been named a columnist uh, for the Chronicle not too too much earlier, uh, he gave his remembrance uh, to us on on that night and talks a little bit about. Uh, what it was like in the city that night. Hi, it's Bruce Jenkins from the San Francisco Chronicle.
2: I had just gotten my column with the Sporting Green a few months before, and I was up in the upper deck when the earthquake hit. And the thing, really, I almost remember most is the sound coming before it hit us. It was this tremendous rumbling sound coming from the south heading our way, and nobody could pinpoint what it was except it was getting increasingly frightening as it got to us. And then next thing you know, we're all rocking and rolling up in the upper deck, and I remember I was standing right next to a guy named Lyle Spencer from the New York Post, who I went to high school with, played basketball with, wrote on the school paper with in Santa Monica way back in the 60s. And we're looking at each other like, we're going down. This is the big one. And it was pretty frightening to be unable to control your body and watching things sway back and forth. But it eventually calmed down and there was a lot of cheering and everybody thought, hey, you know, this is great. And then the reality hit home very soon when people came to realize what was going on around the Bay Area. Uh, we had uh, several people on the field talking to players, and I took it upon myself to um, get back to the Chronicle office and transport a couple of very uh, important uh, sports writers along with me. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, the Baltimore Sun, and Tom Boswell, the Washington Post. They were very grateful to get a ride down Third Street to the Chronicle, which was a harrowing trip uh, in the darkness, and there were some pretty menacing characters out there. Looked like they were bent on mayhem and when we got to the city, I remember Tom Boswell saying, where are we? And we were in downtown San Francisco with no lights, and that, that was an experience in itself. So we made our way into the Chronicle building. Uh, for some reason, the th- we had a complete power outage here. Uh, the third floor was not accessible. We were on the second floor with emergency power in extremely dim light, trying to hammer out stories on laptops from you know the War of 1812 and and it was really, really primitive, and as it turned out, we printed just an eight-page edition for the following morning. There was only one sports story, kind of a staff conglomeration, and the work that we did, uh, earnest as it was, didn't appear then. Uh, the following day, we were still dealing with a power outage, and uh, a bunch of us managed to get some some pieces into a 16-page uh, chronicle that appeared uh, the following day, uh, and that was, uh, it was, it was definitely an, an adventure trying to to pull off something like this with basically no assets. But, you know, we were all rewarded that we were able to do something and, you know, basically felt lucky to be it all in one piece, uh, as opposed to some of the horrors that were unfolding in in the Bay Area.
0: Yes, in a, in a darkened city, um, that's where all the reporters, that's where the teams all came to try and find out what was going to happen to the World Series. and And we know, obviously, that uh, it was sort of secondary to the, uh, all the, the damage and the, and the death uh, and injuries in, in the city. Um, baseball was uh, relatively attuned to that, and um, you and I both had a very bizarre experience, probably the most bizarre press conference that, that both you and I had been to. Faye Vincent had just become commissioner of baseball upon the death of Bart Giamatti, the sudden death of Bart Giamatti, and he held a press conference inside a ballroom at the St. Francis Hotel, with no microphones, no lights, no anything. It was actually a candlelight press conference. You remember that?
3: Absolutely. Um, well, after I had, you know, done my duty in San Mateo on the Peninsula, you know, I had slept at my friend's parents' house on the couch in Daly City, got a few hours sleep, came to that press conference. And as it turns out, as I learned in in doing this oral history, preceding the press conference was a candlelight meeting with Vincent. And Bob Lurie and the Hosses, and they were, you know, talking about what they were going to say at the press conference, what they were going to do, and uh, Mayor Agnos and the police chief apparently kind of burst into this meeting and said, "I'm not going to be able to send anyone to Candlestick to inspect it for a while." Right, and With- and the
0: and the uh, well, not only inspecting the ballpark, but also. Uh, the police required for a world series. I think Correct. that ultimately was why they made the decision to postpone the World Series. Uh you know, at first there was talk about canceling it altogether, uh which had uh you know, that, that had never that had never happened. And they were talking about canceling or it. Or moving it out of the area. Or moving it out of the area. Yeah. Right. Finding a neutral site. Um and uh you know the police, the lack the, the saying like, we need our police elsewhere. We need we need all of right. our uh you know people elsewhere. And um ultimately the decision was made to restart it uh, 10 days later and i got the sense uh and i i don't think this is an original thought that um you know that at by that point 10 days after i think that people wanted the world series they needed the world series as a as a diversion um to um you know sort of sort of get back to baseball now the giants and a's had two very different ways of approaching this uh, the giants held um, these workouts at Candlestick every day. They played a couple of simulated games. Uh, I remember having to take the ferry from the East Bay to get there, um, to get into the city because of the bridge. But the A's did something completely different. Uh, and I uh, did you did you travel down to Arizona with the A's? I did not, because
3: like I said, Susan Fornoff was still the beat writer, so okay. I think she might have. Um, but you know, they had talked about doing it. You know, within a day or two after the quake, sort of realized it was too soon. And I think waited a while. I don't think they went down for five or six days. It might have been that weekend right because it was the earthquake was on a Tuesday, the seventeenth the series resumed Friday the twenty seventh which I think we can say, given the detachment of thirty years was an appropriate delay yeah, absolutely you know, my my dad always tells me about the NFL starting you know playing games two days after Kennedy was assassinated, and how horrible a decision it seemed at the time, and it looks even worse now, you know, given the power of time and detachment so I think. Baseball made the right decision on many levels, the, the practicality of not having the police officers, but also the respect for the victims. And and, and you're right. At some point, it, life needed to go on, but not two days later, maybe 10 days later. And,
0: and the A's uh, were credited for bringing, taking their players away to a warm-weather place where they were free from the distractions. I'm not minimizing what happened to the people who passed away and the damage and the injuries, but uh, from a baseball sense, those were distractions. And uh, actually, in your oral history, you talked to uh, Sandy Alderson. He told you something interesting from a baseball standpoint. yeah,
3: a couple things. Um, First of all, he said uh, the night of Game 3, which I never heard this until recently, um, Steve Croner actually talked to to Sandy and contributed to our story, um, that they weren't sure Bob Welch was going to be able to pitch. Um, I mean, you mentioned... You know, Stewart and Moore had, had shackled the Giants in the first two games, and as it turned out, Stewart and Moore came back in games three and four given the delay. But originally, Bob Welch was scheduled to pitch game three, but apparently he had strained his hamstring a few days earlier, shagging fly balls in batting practice. So the A's were not sure at all he could pitch in game three. They were going to let him warm up, see how it went, and if he couldn't pitch, Kurt Young, who more recently has been the Giants pitching coach, um, but was on that A's staff, was going to pitch uh, that game. Um so that, I had never heard that before. That, I found that kind of interesting. And the other point Sandy made about going to Arizona was that he thought at some point people were going to get past the earthquake. It didn't seem like it immediately, but he's right. Eventually, you move on. And he wanted their fans to remember a World Series victory, you know, that 30 years later, as we, here we stand in 2019, that people were going to remember the outcome almost as much as the earthquake. Maybe not, but there' certainly people remember that the A's you know rolled to victory, so that was part of their thinking and to their credit, you know Dave Stewart was very involved in the community efforts here, and they sold ten, they sold out Phoenix Municipal Stadium and donated all the money to earthquake relief so it, I think they did it in a in a respectful way, and they played a couple inter-squad games in in Arizona, much like the Giants did at Candlestick, and uh, kind of got away from the the mayhem or the Uncertainty here in the Bay Area for a couple days and then came back and obviously finished off uh, finished off the sweep yeah
0: there's a revisionist history that uh, if they had gotten to play an uninterrupted World Series the Giants would have uh, no. yeah I know you're shaking your head no no no, no. Oh, the Giants um, were a very good team but that Hayes yeah, um, team once they acquired Ricky Henderson
3: in June it's one of the best teams of all time yeah and really. and
0: yeah and I covered the 89 reunion this year for the Giants and I talked to a lot of the players and they they all said now nah, we, we were going to get smoked one way or another I will tell you the My one of my lasting memories of my life, not just um, of, um, you know, that series in the earthquake was when they did resume before game three at Candlestick and people were filing in. To a ballpark that actually stood up extremely well, the the damage that had occurred to Candlestick was it was cosmetic. It was uh, like there were some. I mean, people said that there were holes that you could look down from the upper deck, but that was just the expansion joints doing their jobs and sw- and moving back and forth, which had the effect of maybe pushing some of the concrete stairs out. But that that's cosmetic. That that was not structural. I'll never forget this, and and really, it it may be the only time I ever remember crying at a baseball stadium. Was when Val Diamond and the members of the um, Beach Blanket Babylon show um, they came out onto the field in full costume and and sang the song San Francisco, uh, which uh, was from an old an old movie, um, and uh, you know San Francisco, open your Golden Gate, etc. And and that's that's when you you know how it is when you have you know ten it's like riding a bicycle you have ten days of this you're just working 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 and you didn't really have a chance to kind of fully appreciate what happened with this earthquake, and that was the moment I I fully appreciated it, um, and uh, I just kind of broke down a little bit in the press box. Now, um, I had mentioned earlier that um, Terry Steinbach's wife in that iconic picture was, uh, was crying and he was comforting her, but she came back, and you actually talked to her uh, at the, uh, you know, you actually talked to her for the uh, Oral history story, right? What did she say?
3: I did, yeah. I mean, I know the, Terry pretty well from my days covering the A's, and Mary was always around, very sweet person. Um, so she had the, the 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 reason behind that was they only they have three children, three grown kids now, but they only had one child at the time, a two year old girl named Jill, who usually came to the games, but they decided to keep her with a babysitter in Alameda that night, um, just because it was the World Series and and want the distraction of a two year old, and so they couldn't reach her. You know, and they were, they're from Minnesota, and, and, and they were unnerved, obviously, by the earthquake. And, and even though they thought she was probably okay, they couldn't get a hold of the babysitter to, to confirm that. So that's why Mary was so upset. She didn't get, as Terry said, she didn't get hit by bricks. She didn't, she wasn't physically uh, injured at all. She was just unnerved by the uncertainty of it all. Um, and, and that's why that picture became sort of famous. And the funny little story I'll tell on that, or she told me two things is one, Her three kids, as they went through middle school in Minnesota, would take earth science class, and they would learn about earthquakes, and in each of their three classes, they would be shown the video from the World Series, and they saw their mother crying hysterically. Oh, that's amazing. So she actually apologized to her kids, because her kids became very self-conscious about this in middle school, right, Uh, seeing her on the video. And the other thing is, she did go back to the World Series, 10 days later, when it resumed, and she walked on the wives' bus, and all the other wives gave her an ovation because they weren't sure she was coming back. Um, But she realized after 10 days she needed to be there, wanted to be there to see Terry and the A's play, and it was just sort of an emotional, momentary reaction.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, and, uh, I mean, obviously the A's uh, have not won a World Series since, um, and, uh, you know, the Giants went on to win three. That remains a a very iconic moment uh, in A's history when – I believe the final out was a a ground ball to first uh, that uh, the ball was thrown to Dennis Eckersley and he caught the ball and uh, celebrated as you would celebrate. One thing I do recall, and you you can tell me if this is true or not uh, or how true this is, was uh, I do know that the Giants and A's clubhouses were, um, they were next to each other. Uh, They were, you know, the two doors were about 10 feet apart in the same tunnel down the right field line. And the one thing that you know, I don't remember hearing was a lot of screaming, the whole champagne party. And what we were told, uh, and I think what was written was that uh, the, the celebration was a little bit subdued just because uh, of what that World Series represented and for the people who lost their lives. Uh, it, is that right?
3: Yeah, I don't recall specifics, but I do know it was subdued. I believe there was no champagne. I believe there was nobody spraying champagne the way traditionally is done and that was I think on order of the Haases the owners who were very civic minded and community conscious and and it was an awkward line to balance right because that's a big achievement to win the World Series and and they hadn't done it since the run in the early 70s and to beat their cross-bay rivals Um, so they had to find a way to kind of celebrate respectfully and I think they did and it it was kind of subdued and the players um, you know, the, the, players didn't know how to really handle it. I mean, it was really un, you know, uh, untread ground at that point, but, uh, but it was definitely muted because of the circumstances. Yes.
0: Right. But I mean, that was a great team and, you know, I think some people thought that the, uh, the championship was, uh, at least a little bit, um, you know, tainted, uh, because, uh, uh, of the ten-day delay, I don't feel that way. I think the A's were the best team in baseball that year, as they were the year before when they lost the World Series to the Dodgers, and uh, they certainly deserve the championship. Uh, well, listen, Ron, this was a, this was a great chat, and I want to thank you for for joining us uh, on our Giant Splash and A's Plus podcast. Uh, and uh, this is going to be an interesting day here, remembering the 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Thanks, Henry. Thank you for listening to this special Giants Splash and A's Plus joint podcast. Make sure to visit sfchronicle.com for our extensive coverage of the 30th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake, and we'll have more podcasts as the off-season continues. Giants Double Play is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell a friend, or give us a review. You can support Giants Double Play and a lot of great journalism with subscription to The Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. You can find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Hank Shulman, or you can email me at hshulman at sfchronicle.com.